Welcome to the Change Group Podcast, where we strive to have conversations each month that will help you as a leader to move your church forward toward healthy, lasting change. Welcome today to uh, this month's episode of the Change Podcast. We are so blessed to have you with us. My name is Nick Poole. I'm the lead pastor at Calvary Church and uh, the director of the Change Group. And we have with us today, uh, Gordon McDonald. Gordon, so great to have you with us today. Thank you, Nick. It's good to see you again. Uh, just take a few minutes, kind of share with us a little bit of your uh, journey, your ministry journey. Tell us about you know some of the churches you've pastored. I know you've done a lot more than pastoring, uh, written a lot of books that are incredibly, incredibly rich, but uh, share with us a little bit your journey in ministry. Well, it would probably surprise you if you looked at me to realize I'm 83 years old. Uh, that was supposed to be a joke, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I met you in person, Gordon, at your house last year, and I was surprised that you were 83 years old. Uh, I, between you and your wife, I wouldn't put you guys, you know, past 70. You guys are like jumping around like little kids. Well, if there's any of that in reality, it's because Gail feeds us so well. This but is true. I started off to say that at 83, I've put in about 60 years, 61 years into one form of ministry after another. Uh, in my years at seminary, I made a discovery about the genius of the church as God's people in motion. And it drew me to want to be a pastor. And by the way, in those early 60s, when I got started, the church was at a low ebb in terms of its reputation. So it, it, for a lot of young men in those days, no women, uh, a lot of men uh, felt that being a pastor was for losers. If, if you were a real winner, you did something else. But I really felt a strong call from God to be a pastor. And over these last 45, 50 active years, I've been a pastor of four different churches. Um, it's interesting to, to list them very, very quickly because they are themselves a little bit of a lesson. My first church was a, a farming country ranching church out on the border of Colorado and Kansas. You had to drive 167 miles to get from where the church was to where I went to seminary in Denver. It was a small church, maybe 50 or 60 people, and they were all ranchers and farmers. So a pastoral call might be on a horse all day long herding cattle or driving a grain truck at harvest time uh, to town, which was 25 miles away. So I had to learn how to preach to agricultural people, none of whom had more education than maybe seventh or eighth grade. Um, and their hands were in the soil or on the back of animals all the time. I was a city boy, so I had to learn a whole new culture for my sermons and the way I related. My second church was founded just outside suburban St. Louis in the Mississippi Valley where all the manufacturing in those days used to take place. And now my ministry was to men and women who were on the assembly line. They were union people, often very angry over what they thought were the exploitations of labor uh, or management. Uh, so you were always nursing stories about management, labor conflicts, and stuff like that. And the challenge was to try to get these people to think with a vision of some type or another, because they planned to be out of that area as quickly as they could when retirement age came. My third church was in Lexington, Massachusetts, 
And now the congregation was very dynamic in its desire to do things with excellence, uh, to grow very deliberately. And uh, most of the people in the church had high degrees in the sciences and the technologies. Uh, our people were manufacturing the space instruments, the military defense uh, uh, weaponry. And uh, so they lived under high secret black box culture. And most of them were much smarter than me. And I preached to that congregation and led them as a pastor for 20 years. My fourth church was in the heart of New York City. Gail and I lived in an apartment on the lower, on the upper east side. And all the members of the congregation, about 350 of them, worked in Wall Street. They were young. They handled billions of dollars in trades every day. And the pressure was unbelievable. Many of them worked 80, 90 hours a week, week after week after week. So if you line up those four churches, you see four different kinds of culture, the agriculture, the laboring culture, the inventive culture, and the financial culture. And with every one of them, I had to make very dramatic changes in the way I presented my thoughts, my ideas, my sermons. Um, so it's been a very adventurous experience. In, in the middle of all that was the presidency of a parachurch organization for a while. And there you become the manager, the CEO. And uh, so it's a totally different ball game. So over these years, I probably have um, been a leader in one way or the other to about six different institutions of all varying contrasts um, and learned the importance of having to adjust to every one of them because they were not going to adjust to me. I had to adjust to them. You had two extremes, first church agricultural, second church urban. That's a, what a, a diverse group of congregations you worked with. It was a, it was a challenge and um, I loved it. I, that was one of the joys of trying to adjust to, to learn the vocabulary of people and the things that they desired that shocked them or whatever to fit in with all the crises of life. The, the first funeral I ever had was of a woman who was on the back of a horse herding cattle and her horse spooked at a rattlesnake through wow. her and she died instantly. And here I am 25 years of age and I'm the one that has to you know, lead the burial service of this person. Uh, so you had to adjust real quickly to things you'd never seen before. Wow. Yeah, for sure. Now, one, one of my favorite books that you've written uh, is Who Stole My Church? I, I, uh, you read that, huh? I, I did. I love it. it <laughs> I, I like, I love how real the story is. I, I know it's not uh, uh, an actual story, but it's all grounded in reality. It's, I, I'm sure it's grounded in actual experiences you've had. Um, so you, you've spoken into this church revitalization world, you know, churches turning around uh, so effectively. If you were to sit down with a pastor who is just starting out in uh, a struggling church, a decline church, a church that needs revitalized, what advice would you give them? I would sit down and talk to them, first of all, about things that aren't talked enough about in seminaries. Uh, in your first year there, you have to cultivate a very personal relationship, first of all, with the board, whether you call them elders or deacons or consistories or other terms. And a lot of young men and women in ministry 
tend to avoid the board or to think that the board uh, is just a group to get things passed. They're the enemy. I have to, I have to go past them. The fact of the matter is you, you better make that board and particularly the chairman of that board, whoever he or she is, they've got to become your best friends. They've got to be people with whom you share confidence. Uh, I, mean, con I mean, confidential material, your thoughts, where you're going personally. Uh, and young people tend to think of that, as I've already said, as an obstacle. Uh, I did for a short while until finally someone took me aside and said, you're making a fundamental mistake. The men and women on this board are here to be your best friends in the institution. They wanna know what you're about and what you're gonna do. They don't like surprises. And if you surprise them and if you, get, if you fail, don't expect them to come and rescue you. But if you share openly with them, then they'll save your hide anytime you, you need it. So the relationship to the board, the second group, if you're a young person coming into a church that needs to be changed, is to identify the visible leaders in the church, but even more important, the invisible people in the church whose word and influence is very, very important to the people. They may never tell you about this, but everybody knows who are the men and women in the church who really um, vet the decisions. Uh, so it's, it's important for a young person to do that. The, the third and last thing I would say to a young person coming into a, a church, whether it's just beginning or one that needs to be resuscitated, is everything is training, training, training. Uh, you'll probably hear me say this a half a dozen times. And again, once again, people are so quick to want to build crowds that they fail to take the lesson of Jesus who spent his first three years with 12 or people. Um, he loved the crowds, I would say. He spoke to the crowds very in, with great discernment, but the crowds were not in his crosshairs. Uh, he met with them and preached to them as a rabbi would, but his real key audience were the disciples. And as a young pastor, I had to learn that the hard way. But once I began to realize that one of the top priority jobs in, in and the elders had to sign off on this, train people, train people, open your heart, show them your vision, tell them where they can learn. Um, those are the, that's the bundle that I would spend my first year. If I were to add one more thing to that, Nick. Yeah, yeah. It's get names, learn the names of the people and what's important to them. And if you really wanna get specific about this, don't diminish your interest in children. Be a pastor that everybody says, this pastor loves my kids. If you love anybody's children, they will love you. And Gail, my wife taught me this. That and if their kids love you, they definitely will love you. Oh, yeah. At my last church, I had a reputation for loving chocolate chip cookies. And there was hardly a Sunday that went by next that some child would not approach me on the front row of the sanctuary before church started. Pastor Mac, my mom and I made chocolate chip cookies yesterday. Oh, man. We have cookies for you. And Gail and I were always carrying cookies home from church because of the children. So those awesome. were the things I learned. You know, uh, I, I'd have to give Gail a lot of the credit. She, she taught me some of these sensitivities that by myself, I'm not sure I would have figured yeah. out. But you love the children. Everything's going to come your way. For, for me, 
you are chocolate chip cookies. I'm a Reese's peanut butter cup guy. So I get these. If oh. you, you can't see this. I got Reese's eggs here. Uh, I have so many Reese's cups. People give them to me <laughs> all the time. I love them. I, I don't, I can't, I couldn't possibly, I'd, I'd weigh 500 pounds if I ate all the Reese's cups that were given to me. Um, but it's, it's good. It's a good thing. I'm not complaining. That's great. That's great. So in, in the different churches that you've pastored, uh, in this your ministry experience, what is the biggest change you ever had to lead? Uh, you, you set me up with that question, and I kept trying to think, and, and it was really hard for me to ferret one out. But I'm going to pick one, although yeah. I know there's some others I could talk about. Oh, yeah. It was the role of women in the church. Mm -hmm. My generation uh, was in, in leadership power during the time that women first stepped to the front and asked to be included in the leadership of the church apart from running the children's ministry and playing the piano. And, uh, you know, even uh, it, as a young man, I started out in an area when there was prejudice against women being up front and doing anything, much less preaching. And God had to deal with me on that. And I, uh, it, was, it was not hard for me to adopt a new way of looking things and to take joy in the women who came in close to the ministry leadership. And we ordained, we ordained some and I took a lot of bullets for that. But the, the church as a whole took almost 25 years wow. to recognize the importance of change in that area. And we brought in theologians and Bible scholars to try to execute the scripture. And you know they'd all start with the result they had in mind and then work back through the scriptures to try to proof the text and everything like that. But there was a lot of emotion back in the 70s and 80s, a lot of emotion. Uh, in traditional areas like New England against women doing anything, unless you joined a liberal denomination, which we shall not name, but uh, <laughs> if you joined a, a real liberal denomination, yeah. you had no problem at all. And that's where a lot of women went. Yeah. But uh, I used to keep saying to our congregation, you know, we, the church lost men back in the 1920s and 30s when we turned against the labor unions. And in the 1980s and 90s, I said, mark my word, you're going to lose the women yeah. because they're, they're moving into high positions in business and education, even in sports. And, but that, that was the one we really had to manage. And it came slowly and it came, came painfully. Man, what was one, uh, one decision or one, one step you took that helped facilitate that like what, what, what i know there i'm sure there wasn't just one one thing you did there's a whole slew of things but what was one of the most impacting uh well, choices the, or decision? In, in in very casual ways without making a big deal out of it we we invited women to come to the pulpit to preach under certain conditions um i remember one in particular from the west coast that we had preached for a weekend she had a she had a lovely voice and she had a brain that was incredible. And as she preached that day, I sat there listening and I thought, I've never considered the fact that there is a feminine dimension to the gospel. Yeah. That when a woman takes a text that I've taken in the past and preaches upon it. She th sees things in that passage of scripture that I never as a man would have ever seen. Wow. So, uh, we, do, we didn't push the church hard on this, but at right occasions when no one would uh, see it as something to object to, 
we put very competent, spirit-filled women uh, up in front of the church. And that did a lot to cause people to lose their fear. And one of the best things you'd hear is every once in a while, a man would say, I never thought a woman could preach like that. I never thought that they'd come up with that kind of stuff. And so you saw minds reluctantly changing, but, but that was one way we did it. Do you think fear diminishes of change when it becomes familiar? Oh yeah, yeah. The, uh, you know, especially in these last 40 or 50 years, our whole culture has been in a state of constant change. And if you look through the culture at those institutions which didn't have to change, and the church is one of them, people will come to church year after year after year when everything is irrelevant. The preaching is bad, the music isn't hot, and they'll still give their money and they'll still show up faithfully. Somehow, but, but if they were considering purchasing a new car, they would go over every square inch of that car and make sure it was the perfect specimen of what they wanted. But in a church, there's a lot of tolerance to messiness, to non-thinking, to things which are out of date. So you're, you're pushing against that. Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, in management terms, a church lacks something that all businesses have, and that's a bottom line. Yeah. How do you measure ministry? Uh, you, you know how to measure the profitability of a company or even a sports team. I mean, you know when your team isn't making it because the score says so. But in a church, people will, you know, will come week after week after week and listen to poor preaching or poor music or, or anything else. And, and the reason they will overlook it, I think, is because most people come to church for the other people. Yeah. You know, they, they come to see each other before church starts. They stay afterwards when church finishes. And the price of being with your friends is you have to go to the worship service in the middle. <laughs> that makes sense. So I think people will tolerate a lot of irrelevance and sloppiness because that's not the reason they came. It's the idea of going to a restaurant where the food's really bad, but the company is good and you endure the painful, uh, difficult, bad tasting food for the sake of the company. Yeah, you, you said that better than me. Yeah. I, I will tell you at my age, which I mentioned before, um, I just, I realize now that Gail and I go to church for a different reason than we would have been in 30 years ago. We go to see the people. Yeah. You know, you pick the music you want, pick the preaching you want. We just want to know, will our friends be there that we can talk to before and after the service is over? It's fair. That's fair. I think that's probably more common than we would like to let on as pastors. <laughs> we oh, want, we want people to say they're there for the preaching, but it's probably not as common as you would think. Yeah, at my, at where I am in life, I know better now. <laughs> if you could go to your younger self before you stepped into pastoral ministry, what's one thing you would you would tell yourself? Oh, one thing. Or if, if you have more than one thing, go for it. <laughs> well, I, without any kind of competition at all, so that my number one idea would be what I call the Sabbath disciplines. Yeah. Um, I went through a period uh, of, of a few weeks of dramatic burnout when I was 31 years of age. And I used to tell the story a lot more than I do now, but one Saturday morning I came down, Gail was making breakfast and I said to her, I'm not staying for breakfast. I, I have too much to do. I don't even know what I'm gonna preach about tomorrow morning. And uh, 
I started toward the door, having told her I was going to skip breakfast. And she turned and she said something like this to me. She said, okay, do what you think you have to do. But I do have a question for you to take to the office. Is this the way you intend to live for the rest of your life? Wow. Because what she saw was me working seven days a week, 24 hours like that. You, you understand that. Yeah. So she says this. And I knew that she shot me right in the head for it. And I, I did a strange thing, Nick, that I'd never done before. And I haven't done since. I started to cry. Wow. I just cried. And I heard the children coming down the stair from, from upstairs. And so to get out of their line of sight, I went into the living room. And I threw myself on the couch. And I cried for four hours. I couldn't stop. And I remember thinking, is this a nervous breakdown? Is this what they do when they take you to the hospital? Gail was very wise. She got the children off to a, a babysitter. And she just came and held me the whole, whole morning while I had this cathartic experience. And then she said to me at lunchtime, why don't you sit out there for the rest of the day and just ask yourself this, what's God trying to say to you? What's missing? And I did that. I went out and I sat there and somewhere during the afternoon, a voice spoke into my heart. I don't, I don't know how you defend that or describe it. I just knew there was a voice of some kind. And the voice said this, quote, now you know what it's like to live out of an empty soul. Wow, wow, wow. And for the first time, you know, when you're a young person, you hear all these teachings and sermons on having your devotions and meditation and all that kind of stuff. You listen to it and then you say, but I have too much to do. I'll do that later on. But that was the day I realized at the age of 31 that I needed something that I call Sabbath. I needed to take 24 hours a week and stop working. You know, in the Bible, it says, this is King James language. Uh, the Sabbath is a holy day unto me. See how's it go? On in that day, you shall do no work. You nor your spouse or your children or your servants or your animals no work. And Gail and I examined that. We talked about it endlessly. We, we sought opinions and we decided we were going to take every Thursday and we were going to disappear. And the objective of that day would be to renew ourselves, our marriages, and our love for Jesus. And it didn't make any difference what we did for the day. As long as we came home at the end of the day renewed, um, we felt it was a successful Sabbath. And we've pretty much stuck to that basic principle all these years. That probably, if, if, if you said one entry, uh, one principle, that, that outdoes them all. To learn to, to do the, the things that realign your soul so that heaven is in touch with you. So good. Uh, there are other things that near that in priority, but that's the number one. That's good. That's really good. As you look back over uh, just your your life, what's what's a challenge you faced? You know, a struggle, a difficulty in a moment you would have said uh, a thorn in the flesh or uh, um, you know a valley that you've walked through that you now look back at and are thankful for. Well, when I was about forty two years of age, uh, I was you know I was 
beginning to rise to whatever peak my life of ministry was going to be. Uh, the church in Lexington, Mass. was growing very, very fast. Um, and so, it, it, you know, you're the leader, so people give you a, a lion's share of the credit, which you don't deserve, but they give it anyway. So everything is going really, really well. One day I get a phone call. It's from a headhunter of a major, major, major evangelical organization, which if I named, you'd know it in a second, but that's not important. Yeah. He said, uh, Mr. McDonald, he said, you've been recommended to us and we're looking for a new president of this organization and we'd like to know, could we put you on the list of candidates? I said, how many people are on the list now? He said, about 50. I said, well, it can't hurt to be on the list because from now on, I can tell people I've been on the list. <laughs> so he hung up with me on the list. Well, every two or three weeks, they'd call and they'd say, uh, we've got this list going and you're still on it. So it went from 50 to 30 to 42 and went from 42 to 35. Then one day they called and they said, we'd like to send a person uh, to interview a few of the people in your church. And I said, well, I, I guess you can do that. So we, I gave them three or four names and their representative flew from another part of the country. Now I'll try to make this short. As the weeks went by, the vetting list got shorter and shorter until one day they said the list is down to five and you're one of the five. Amazing. Now I'm really dreaming. Uh, you know, this, this is big stuff. And uh, then, then the list got down, if I shorten the story, to two. And they've had me and they've had Gail for interviews and tests and all kinds of ways you vet CEOs. And uh, to, to make it even shorter, there finally came a weekend when they said, we're going to make our decision on Sunday afternoon between two of you who should get this appointment. We want you to come and do one more interview with the board. And so I sat for four hours with this board. Gail was sitting behind me on the, at, the edge, at the wall listening to all this. And she said to me, and this is not my wife normally, they're going to pick you. I can just see it in their eyes and in their voice. You're their guy. So we went home to Grace Chapel and uh, uh, I called a staff meeting to be held at nine o'clock on Sunday night because I figured, okay, this is probably going to happen. The staff needs to know before the announcements are made in the press and everything. And finally, around nine o'clock on Sunday night, the phone rang and the chairman of the board says, Gordon, we've picked the other guy. I can't wow. tell you, you know, my first reaction was, well, I can see God's hand in that. You've picked the right man. I think he's more competent than I am. Congratulations on your new president. And I hung up the phone and I told the staff, um, you've often seen me when God said yes. Now you're going to see me when God says no. The next morning I went back to work, you know, even especially early as if to make an impression upon people that I wasn't disturbed about that at all. Yeah. And for about two weeks, life normalized and then one morning i woke up and i sat straight up in bed and i remember doing this i said out loud what the heck happened i was so sure that this was ne my next call i was so positive that god was in this all the way and i blew it i missed it i didn't see what god was doing at all well 
The bottom line is for the next two years, I was really deep down in my heart in a very blue funk. Um, I really doubted God's ability to signal his best purposes for me. Every time I prayed, I started out, God, I don't know your language anymore. And here I was the one who was preaching on knowing God's will. Yeah. And I'm not even sure I believed it myself. Well, to end the story, a few years passed, maybe five or six years. The other person has gone through a devastating experience as president of this ministry. They leave under very, very difficult, terrible uh, conditions. And Nick, what I began to realize is if I had been picked to do that job, I'd have failed sooner than he did. Wow. I didn't understand. I didn't understand the dynamics of an organization like that. I was pursuing the glamour of it. Yeah. Not the work of it. And I was not gifted for that work. And that board had failed to see that. So that probably was one of the most important lessons I ever learned at midlife was don't allow people to sway your opinions. Uh, stick with what you can do well, not with what you can't do well. And so I look back at that episode and say, I wasn't dumped. I was, I was rescued. It's really good. It gives you a different perspective on the voice of God, the will of God. You, you questioning, am I not hearing his voice any longer? Yeah. When he's like, I, you're hearing it clearly. You just don't see what I see. Yeah. It's really good. You got it. I was a real Balaam. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. What, what habits uh, did you establish as a pastor that allowed you to be more effective in caring for people and leading your congregation? Well, when you go to a church, particularly if it's sizable, you know, I, the word megachurch is falling out of repute, I think, these days. But when you go to a church of, let's name a number of more than 350 active or seated, seated, seated people, you can't avoid it. Little bit by little, your pastoral side is being jeopardized and your management size is being maximized. Uh, my church in Lexington grew to a particularly large size. The next thing I knew, uh, I, was, I was really a CEO. And the only people week to week that I really conferred with, with was my staff of about 40 people, the board, and officials that were elected to particularly important positions like finance and long range planning and such. I could go a whole week, Nick, without talking to a normal person. Yeah. And even worse, I could go a whole week without talking to one human being who didn't have a faith in Christ. And part of my gift is I know how to get into people's lives. I know how to ask questions that they will open their hearts to me in ways they wouldn't do to 10 other people. And I wasn't doing that anymore. So I had to be very, very careful as the church grew that I stuck to things, doing things at least half the time that I was really gifted and called to do. And I don't know where I'm going further with this question, except to say that I had to learn how to run an organization, how to divide my time and how to say no. And it took me a lot because I was by nature a people pleaser. Uh, so it was hard for me to say no. How did your calendar play out that way? I know you talked about before, you know, the struggle of 
of taking a Sabbath and working seven days a week. And, and um, I, just from my experience, you know, I've been in full-time ministry for almost 17 years now. And the, the balance of the urgent, the important uh, versus uh, just the day-to-day stuff you have to do. H- how did you balance all of that in your schedule? Well, working backwards across your good question, I want to say this. I rarely had an emergency, faced an emergency that couldn't wait 12 or 24 hours. It just didn't happen. Everybody glamorizes the pastor running here, running there. It doesn't have to happen very, very often. But what I did in my midlife as, as the management principle, the management situation grew and grew and grew, is I learned to divide my week up into seven working days and three blocks of work a day morning, afternoon, and evening. And I marked off Thursday as a Sabbath. And then what I did was this. I said, I will work for the church two out of every three blocks per day. So on Monday, I would work Monday morning and Monday afternoon. On Tuesday, I'd work Tuesday morning and Tuesday evening. On Wednesday, I might work Monday morning and or Monday. Well, you get where I'm going. Yeah, yeah. I said, I owe the company two blocks of time a working day, plus my Sabbath on Thursday. But if you're looking at listening to that, every day you've got a block of six or seven hours where you can write in times with your spouse for a date, children for a game or two. You've got plenty of time. And I just, I just, I told our elders, I, I'm going to work my butt off for two blocks a day for you. But um, you're not going to find me working three blocks. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to pour that much guilt into my life. And I found that when I followed those procedures, it worked very, very well for me. And I would say about seventy percent of the time, I kept to those rules. But every once in a while, I did violate them. But you know, you can really good. every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, what we do these days is we build churches like an airplane that can't fly. We, we, we build it all and it sits there and we can't make it work because we build it bigger than we are. Hmm. And we, that's one of the ways you control growth. You don't want to build a church that's so great that you can't manage it or you can't put it in the hands of somebody else and let them manage it. It's really good. Where did you learn about the blocks of time? Where did you learn that from? Up there, yeah. That's one of the few ideas I'll claim credit for. <laughs> it's really good. That's a really good. Uh, yeah, I it, it came natural to me. Uh, I uh, I'm I'm not by nature a disciplined person or a well organized person, so I have to clamp onto myself uh, some systems uh, by which I do my work. If you know deadlines are important to me, whether it's a book or a sermon, I need a deadline. When do you want this finished by? And, and the deadline will drive me or, uh, well, that's good enough to say. Uh, so I, these, these are systems I had to invent for myself or I would not have gotten anything done. It's really good. It's really good. Last question. This, is, this might be a little bit of a loaded question, but uh, give me your best uh, perspective. I really uh, respect your, your perspective on this. What do you feel is the most seminal issue in the American church today? We're not through the pandemic period yet. 
So an answer six months from now or nine months from now might reflect new realities that today we know nothing about. Yeah. But if, if you said stop the machine right now, I'm going to take a guess that the most important single thing the church is going to have to work on, and here's my word for it, the doctrine of gathering. Mm. We were made to gather. There's a new book out by Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi in England. He's written a book called, written a book called Morality. And he talks about that mystical set of principles that we follow that are even beneath laws. And he calls them the morals of a civilization or a family or an institution. And he says, when those get disregarded and you start breaking, and watch my fingers, you're on an arc where you go from I to we. Yeah. And right now, America is in a state of worshiping the I. I did this. This is mine. I don't care about you. When we started more than 250 years ago, we were a we civilization. We will do this together. We will help each other. We will protect each other. And our society is falling apart today because we no longer know how to gather. Hmm. The church has, the church is built on that principle of gathering. We gather as families and intimate friends. We gather as small purposeful groups where we, we feel the call of God to get something done. And we gather as a congregation for those great words when we call upon God and, and sing the praises of who this God is. And on a regular basis, you're moving between those three gatherings for the, the uh, for your, your, your spiritual life. And then out of that, you build your work life or your education or whatever it is in your larger world. But we've got to go back and we've got to, again, examine how the Bible calls us to gather. Um, churches are dividing. People who are long-term friends don't like each other anymore. And so we've got makeup work to do. People are going to have a lot of repenting to do somewhere down the line, if they indeed will do it. And out of that will come some new levels of gathering uh, that will feed the soul of each of us and pull us back together again. So I keep thinking to myself, how many new ways can believers and followers of Christ learn how to gather together uh, to get their work done? Really good. So good. So good. Well, Gordon, I so appreciate your time uh, with us today. This has just been so uh, deep and challenging and rich. Your wisdom and experience is always uh, just a breath of fresh air for me. And I know for everyone else that's listening and I appreciate you taking the time uh, to be with us. Thank you, Nick. It's good to have you as a friend. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. And uh, uh, thank you again, Gordon. And uh, just want to mention for everyone listening, you know, if you want to get more information about the change group, you can visit, visit the change group.org. Uh, we have a blog and, of course, our monthly podcast. Feel free to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening. And we are just blessed to have you with us. And we look forward to seeing you next month. Thanks for joining us for this month's podcast. If you'd like more resources or to learn more about The Change Group, you can visit us at thechangegroup.org. Next month, we'll be back with another valuable conversation. And we hope you can join us.